This is Reimagining Healthcare, a podcast about innovation in the healthcare industry. It's a show for healthcare business owners, for healthcare professionals, for industry investors, and health tech entrepreneurs. On the show, I talk to health tech and healthcare innovators to uncover how they're reimagining and building a world of seamless digital healthcare experiences and how that fits into people's lives. I'm your host, Yanni Sopanos. Today, I'm speaking with Lynette Reeves, a behavioral change specialist with the Miramar Project Factory. It's a globally integrated digital development studio, coupling leading edge and engaging solutions with unique behavioral change, storytelling, and gamification. Lynette shares her story having come through healthcare and moving into the agency realm to support clients achieve success with health tech and digital health initiatives using behavioral change techniques. In this light, we work through discussing behavioral economics and behavioral-centered design, including understanding some key frameworks for digital health product design, such as the EAST framework. We work through evaluating effectiveness to support client outcomes in clinical health, in well-being, and with social change. And we also explore how we reimagine healthcare going forward, knowing these insights and theories. I think you'll find out that whether we're conscious of it or not, behavioral science and economics underpins a lot of what is currently offered to us in the digital space. And therefore, trying to reimagine healthcare without behavioural insights is likely to lead to failure. One might say the secret to success is to constantly inform your innovation roadmap using behavioural insights. Let's jump in. Oh, hey, Lynette, how are you doing today? I'm good, thanks. How are you? I'm pretty well, all things considered. It's nice to be sort of well on the way into 2022 and a whole new momentum. Let me tell you, it's pretty busy at the moment. How are you finding things? The beginning of this year has just shot past. It feels like it was yesterday as Christmas and here we are already nearly a quarter of the way into the new year. Yeah, it's incredible. So I really appreciate you coming on today. You're in a very fascinating realm of behavioral sciences and theories and pragmatic application of those kinds of ideas. So there's so much to unpack today. I kind of want to find out a little bit about your journey getting here and then what you're involved with now and how we see the future playing out. Because I kind of think that behavioral science is one of those things that we all kind of hear references to it in terms of being explicitly named or talked about. But I don't think a lot of us actually realize how much goes into the type of digital interfaces and tools and even marketing and even a lot of product that's in our lives, how we sort of interact with behavioral science all the time. And, you know, in this show, we're somewhat obsessed with how we're reimagining healthcare and how we're going to do that through digital health and health tech type initiatives. But it seems to me that if we're going to do digital health right, we have to think about behavioral science as an essential ingredient, sort of a bit like if you're going to make a pharmaceutical drug, you've got to have some chemists involved in there somewhere. Like there's got to be some fundamental kind of always inputting into the process in order to make sure that we're getting a really effective outcome with anything that we do in the space. With that said, tell me about your journey. What's inspired you to sort of concentrate and focus on this particular area? Well, I think it goes back quite some time. I never trained specifically in the health arena or even in digital, but I did work a long time ago, many years ago in a mental health unit. And that got me really super interested in health and wellness in itself. And then my career just kind of ended up through the medical industry out in the UK, but I was working a lot out of the US systems as well and the European systems. And so I've got a pretty deep understanding of the healthcare 
industries in those markets and now in Australia as well since I've been here for the last 11 years. And what that's allowed me to do is have a real specialty in understanding the challenges and the industry talk and chatter and what's going on in this space around the world. And by sheer chance, I stepped into a much more of a digital role 15 years ago. And suddenly I've become a bit of this hybrid role of understanding the health arena quite deeply, but also having an understanding of the digital realm as well and the complexities and very bit of a technical leg up there. So being able to combine those two and all of a sudden I'm advising a lot of clinical researchers or other organizations to architect or to build their research products in this space. And naturally that's going to start engendering talk about how do we increase engagement? How do we make sure that these products actually work? And that's where behavioral change actually comes into that. So I've been working in that realm for a number of years now, very specifically in behavioral change and how to apply behavior change techniques into digital products for health and wellness purposes. So it's kind of this really great long journey that's ended in this very specific little avenue that I'm down. But it's just so fascinating because there's so much that's rooted in psychology, but the actual specific psychology about why people do certain things or how people create habits and therefore how do we break a habit or how do we make something better or how do we ask people to change certain behaviours for social good. That's very much a COVID conversation in some ways. Interesting journey, but fascinating one. And it really brings out, I guess, how these things are really sort of a convergence of a variety of disciplines now that have come together, you know, the learnings of the world since the age of the internet. We've seen a tremendous amount of individual sciences and specialisations actually amalgamating into now new domains and new roles and new professions and essential ingredients into achieving things because we're somewhere in between the real world and the digital world now, aren't we? All our lives are kind of a hybrid of that interaction and we're going to go further now when we talk about metaverse and things of that type of nature. But I guess for those who are sort of uninitiated into behavioural science and behavioural change, although a lot of healthcare professionals who listen to this show would understand behavioural change and how important that is to healthcare outcomes. But when you think about it, how would you explain for our listeners the idea of behavioural change in the context of health tech? Give us a little bit of a background on that. Basically, the assumption in mainstream economics, and it kind of starts, we kind of have to look at policy and economics side of things before we start moving into the health piece of that. But the assumption in that mainstream economics is that individuals always act to maximise their long-term best interest. They have stable preferences and they're consistent rational actors. But what behavioural economics actually does, it's the specific use of behavioural insights to inform policy especially through the government, but also individuals' behaviour. So behavioural economics more focuses instead on the ways in which rationality is limited. And we are actually more influenced by factors such as being impulsive, habitual behaviours. We have limited willpower. The social norms that we come across with the advent of social media, we're always comparing ourselves to our peers. And then, of course, the context in which those choices are made. So We might have uh, different areas such as our financial interests, which are a lot harder to implement behavioral change in that space because so many people find it very difficult to understand their long-term gains from financial decision-making. Whereas with health, and it's a much more immediate effect 
In fact, if I go even further, food is actually shown to be the most influential area that behavioural economics can actually play a space in because it's the most immediate effect. And it's the space where people have the most habitual behaviours that can be broken through very short-term tools and techniques. In the terms of health, it's a combination of many pieces of their lives. It's their personal health, it's their data, their privacy and how they use that. And it's the simple will to go to their doctor and actually have something looked at. And how do they interact with their own health interactions, their own health data itself? And how can we use that to help them improve their outcomes? And that could be anything from medication adherence to being able to more easily access their doctors. And I don't just talk about telehealth. I mean, the benefits of telehealth to accessibility to people who are rural or remote or who can't literally leave their house. So all of these avenues are opening up and behavioral economics and behavioral insights can really play a role there now that we've got this digital adoption of products. And yeah, it's this fascinating area that we're going to start seeing a lot more of both from private organizations as well as government as well. When people ask me sometimes, what is digital health and how can I relate to it? I often use a context to say, well, look, you know, how does health fit into the lives, schedules, goals, and aspirations of you? How do you see it fitting in so that it is a more personalized and more customized type of interaction? And that doesn't require necessarily exiting your routines or some of your very limited time being made available to part your home or depart your community in order to go somewhere in order to get access to it and then to be able to interact with it. And I know we see at a metadata level that retention and adherence are challenges in healthcare as it stands. Everything you're talking about there around those habits and the type of lifestyle choices and the insights that can be gained, that's an incredibly valuable piece of knowledge to be able to get access to so that as you're thinking about what to do in digital health or when to use digital health, it's being informed from that perspective, mm-hmm. understanding that. I like the way you put it, that humans don't always act rationally. I think the older we get in life, the more we start to see that play out. Perhaps we don't say it that way or perhaps our ego doesn't want to admit it. But there tends to be a lot of stuff there that is perhaps not conscious that's happening. It's that unconscious level that behavioural economics really plays into. And it's not trying to influence your decision. There are bad actors in the space, bad players. You know, you see that a lot in the political space. But certainly when we're trying to change people's individual behaviours, yeah, absolutely. We want to be speaking to those unconscious biases, those unconscious cues and habits that people aren't even aware they've got and could be easily, hate to say manipulated, but that's kind of what we're doing, but in this pro-social manner. I think that's implicitly some of the potential controversy in how effective behavioural science can be and behavioural economics can be in achieving an outcome. I think the ethical framework is pretty well established now in terms of how to work in an ethical approach with it as well. And some people may try and exploit it negatively. I think we could see some examples in online gambling, for example, where some of the approaches can be used to take advantage of people. But we're talking about healthcare here and we're talking about how do we actually do good for people and how can we actually support the outcomes that they're looking for in combination with their healthcare professionals. And conversely, also provide for a better experience for healthcare professionals in the process and address a lot of their problems and pain points. So the idea of all of this theory and this evolution and this iteration that gets us to this point and sets you up in a career as a behavioural specialist, are there some rules of thumbs developing? Are there kind of some approaches that when you're talking with your clients and you're sort of approaching a particular 
problem to solve or some kind mm-hmm. of healthcare opportunity. What are you seeing as kind of the prevailing or leading established theories or if not theories, things that are seem to be working really well? What we're seeing a lot more now is the emergence of personalised telehealth care. I don't mean you're getting onto the telehealth conference with your GP. I'm talking about personalised, individualised apps and platforms that a clinician and their whole team potentially and the patients can actually interrogate and use to actually build that healthcare data for a specific purpose. So I think there's an app called CardiHab that are just going to be incubated with and Health, the accelerator there, and they are very much in this space. It's a personalised app for cardiology aftercare where clinicians and patients can actually converse, register their health data on the go remotely, and the whole thing can be run in a way where the clinician has access, immediate access to that data that they need to effectively give more personalised care to their patients. In a traditional manner, it might have been the patient turning up to an appointment every half year or when they need to with a paper diary about what they ate, how they exercised, how they felt. Now they can just log that on the go on the day in a much easier format, for instance. And we might even have digital monitoring tools as well. might be monitoring your heart itself potentially even heart valves or internal heart machinery can be speaking directly to the clinician as well. So there's no room for doubt in there. And we've been doing a lot of in that space as well, that personalized health areas. We've worked with Johnson & Johnson and CSIRO previously on an app that was for knee replacement surgery. And it was actually given to knee replacement patients three months pre-op and then post-op as well for six months. And their clinicians and their physios could also access the data on the app as well. So it was actually connected to a Fitbit. So we were monitoring their steps, their stairs and their other biological elements. The clinicians can see that, but users can also log how much pain they're in or if they're having issues with exercises. Their physios can remotely configure their exercise programs to make sure that they're exercising effectively. So there was a lot going in there but it made it so much easier for the clinicians to see what was going on with their patients without the need for phone follow-up, for instance. And they're just going through the research data at the moment to establish how effective it was. But we do know early data is that it has been effective as a communication tool and has been very well received by both sides. So we'll see where that one goes. But we are seeing a lot more products in that space different ways of making platform health data speak to all of the stakeholders involved. There's a lot of scientific method behind it, isn't there? And it's probably something that doesn't come through as much. And especially when we think about healthcare and how we bring health tech and digital health initiatives forward, convincing the industry of the science and the validation behind it is going to be pretty important. It probably needs to work hand in hand. So we're converging into that kind of domain now. But what are you kind of seeing as the prevailing theories, and I guess in the workflow, I know with your background, the Project Factory is doing some stuff that takes clients through understanding the behavioral aspects of the target audience that is being looked at. Can you sort of talk us through the, in broad brushstrokes, I guess, what the process is for getting that validation and evidence-based approach that kind of leads to the design insight? It's kind of a bit of a funny story because we've been doing the behavioral insights for a number of years now. One of our first apps was the MyQuitBuddy for the Department of Health. And essentially that taught us in a very early days 
everything we know about behavioral economics and how to apply that in a really effective manner on uh, digital products. So over the years, we've been starting to establish real processes when we speak with our health clients about how we can escalate and really drive engagement on the products that they're trying to build. Ultimately, many of them are trying to either solve a health outcome or at least investigate whether that digital product might have an effect. Normally, our clients do have an idea of what they actually want, they, and they usually come to us with at least some form of evidence about a specific thing that they want to do. And then we usually sit down with them because their expertise is in that health space and how patients respond to treatment. Our expertise helps to establish how do we engage them on a digital platform to do exactly that. So we do a lot in that upfront workshopping area. We consult. We're not really yes people over here and say, yes, that's exactly what we'll do. We'll just digitize what you've got on paper. That's not kind of what we do. What we do is we digitize what you have on paper, but then we escalate it and we apply a bunch of proven established insights and behavioral nudges that we call them to different products. And it will depend as well on the different audiences, because of course, not everyone's going to respond to different nudges in different ways. So when we're workshopping with a client upfront, we're doing a lot of user-centered design. We're doing a lot of user workshops, really working really carefully with our users to make sure that we're capturing the essence of who these people are, what are their motivations, what are their goals. We don't want to throw everything in the kitchen sink at what the of all of the different tools we can use. We want to make sure that what we're proposing is actually going to work in this context. So a good thing we actually do is I'm not sure if your listeners have heard of the East framework. It was actually developed out of the nudge unit in the UK who were the first of their kind a number of years ago. And the behavioral insights team actually did most of the initial research and actually came up with this framework and it was very evidence-based framework and it's called the east so it's making things easy timely attractive and social and that's the framework that we put into all of our products we look through the lens of that east framework and you can actually read up on this online it's got all of the evidence-based paperwork there they even do this little deck of cards which is really cool all these really cool little cards that we can kind of apply to any digital product and ask ourselves, is this right for this audience? Is this the idea of defaults? Is this going to be correct for this particular audience? So when we're working with our clients, we really do that that workshopping process. And then we test what can we apply to this to really elevate that process? And is it right? Is it going to be right for this audience? Or is it going to be right for this subset of this audience, but not this one. For example, we've got an app that is just about to launch called Live that was developed again with the Department of Health, but it's actually developed by us ourselves. And it's actually for dementia patients and their carers to create closed communities where patients and also their carers can ask for help from their little closed community who might be their neighbours, their friends, their family, to enable them to do tasks around the home or to take them to appointments, for instance. The patient and the carer can actually create those tasks and assign those tasks. People can volunteer all in this nice little personalised community for the patient. And, of course, there's a journey there as well. Early diagnosis dementia patients may be perfectly able to manage their own account but at some point as they degenerate they're probably going to need a carer to take that account over for them so we've got lots of different audiences within that so when we were researching that one we sat down with all of those audiences we sat down with all of our stakeholders to work out 
as a patient, what is it you need out of a digital product? And as a carer, what do you need out of it? And as a community member, how are you going to use this? And then we apply different behavioral insights into those areas based on who that audience might be, even in the same product. So once we're doing that co-design process, which is important, a product's not going to work and it's only going to work if you actually understand your audience. So immersing yourselves into that audience is probably the most critical element of all of this. And not just at the beginning, but ongoing as well. That's really important too. So yeah, we basically tread carefully through user motivations and then we land on the right combination of tools and then we start to implement those into a product and then we test, test, test until we get to a point where we launch and then we optimize, optimize, optimize. That's essentially the cycle that we go through for all of our products that talk to behavior change. So in tech terms, we talk a lot about user experience design. We talk a lot about customer experience. Well, not enough about customer experience design, to be honest. I talk a lot about that and really with everybody I work with, I really emphasize how important the entire customer experience is end-to-end. But you're kind of in a realm where it's a strong venn with those aforementioned areas of professions, but you're also doing uh, behavioral design in a sense. Are you? You're kind of figuring out the behavior of the audience and then designing mm-hmm. accordingly in order to make it easy to work with the tools that are being presented to them. Is that kind of a fair summary? You're absolutely right. It is kind of this Venn diagram, but it always comes back to the customer, right? It's a customer-centric approach and customers by their very nature are individuals and individuals all have different behaviours. They all have different motivations. And sometimes you can group users into different motivations or common goals. But even within that, everyone's going to use something in a slightly different way. So a lot of what we try to do is bridge the gap of that personalised experience and make sure that people feel like they've got a agency within that experience itself. And we can only do that by making sure we consider who they are, make really focusing on that customer-centric approach through this behavior-centered lens. It's a very tricky area to get right, but we're all experimenting in this space. And that's the fun bit about it because we do get to experiment and we get to take those learnings somewhere else. Even in the past five years, we're learning so much more about the aged care community and that they are not necessarily digital agnostic. You know, they are very much digitally enabled now and they are willing to step into that space. We can no longer assume that they don't know how to use their digital products, especially if you need to consider that. But maybe that they just use them in a slightly different manner to the millennials, for instance. So we just need to speak into that space. But what you learn in one area, you can then take forward into another product in the same space and then retest again and check that theory and and make sure you're validating that approach. It's funny how that works. There seems to be a lot of that going on in life where people just have so much assumption in just thinking they understand life and then the data tells them something different and it's a revelation. But to talk about seniors being digital agnostic, certainly not the people in my life. And also, you know, growing up, I remember there was a prolific era in Australia's history where that tabaret concept started to roll out all over the place where pubs were extending their spaces and rooms in order to put gaming machines in. And who were the biggest consumers of that? It was the elderly population. So they didn't really have any barriers to being able to engage with those kind of computers or gamification in essence. I guess what I'm trying to say there is that we've got to get through the assumptions. We've got to stop thinking that the individual designer knows everything. And it's actually about saying, let the audience tell you what they want and how they want it, because that's your path of least resistance in being able to help them achieve their goal or provide them with a good or service that they're satisfied with. But there seems to be some common ground, right, Lynette? I mean, you used a word earlier, the nudge, and everybody talks about the nudge in our industry. Why is the nudge 
so ubiquitous? Is it just something that all humans are amenable to? Why is it so common ground? Why does everybody talk about it? Is it science-backed? Tell me more about the nudge. Well, it's funny because the nudge really only came to prominence, I think, when Richard Thaler and Cass Sunstein published their book, Nudge, and I think that was in 2008. It's been around a little while now, and it was just wildly popular. All of a sudden, things seem to make a lot of sense to people when you read that and you understand how the experiments that people have done in this space, and again, that UK Behavioural Insights team who are working with government in government policy, and they were given free reign to experiment to their heart's content with any department in the government, which is fantastic because everyone has learned from that. The US now have a team, Australia has a team federally and at state level. And the nudge itself is simply a quick descriptor to understand all of these other elements. Everything in this East framework is a nudge. All of these pieces of the puzzle are nudges, essentially. And so it's just kind of just this one term that encompasses a much deeper set of tools. Even the terminology of a nudge is actually expanding to include other terms that almost complement that or provide an alternative view. For example, when a nudge is where we use cues to nudge a certain desired behaviour, we also have things like a shove where we introduce more forceful methods to compel a person into a desired behaviour. Or we might have a sludge, which is an unnecessarily difficult process which results in undesirable experiences. And then I've also heard this new one, this was a new one to me a few months ago, called a slippery nudge, where we create a desired behaviour by slipping it past a person before they even know what's happening. And I think that's just completely and utterly fascinating to see how people are using that term nudge And then creating these whole potentially bad implementations of those to deliberately make things difficult for people. A really good example of that is when if you want to unsubscribe from a subscription, but you have to phone a call centre to do that. I'm sorry. We all live on the internet now. There is absolutely no excuse for that. But you've just done a slippery nudge in there because you're making it really hard to make it. Sorry, that would be a sludge and not a slippery nudge. It's so tricky just to see where everything lies, but the terminology itself is actually this broader term for much more specific tools and resources that we use. So I think now that everyone's knowing about it a little bit more, they just see nudge as a, oh, somebody's influencing my behavior. And I think people are okay with that if it's open and honest. Well, that's the key to it, isn't it? Having that informed consent. If we're sort of going to overlay with healthcare is the sludge is really not necessarily advocating for the interests of the customer. Yeah, healthcare luckily is in that really positive space where the reasons why we're nudging people's behaviour is, yes, for social good, but it's also for the individual's good as well, first and foremost. And it's really hard to find the negative in that space or to try and manipulate the negative connotations. I'm sure there's people that have tried. I think everyone would be happy to be nudged if they knew that that was going to improve a behavior that they wanted to improve anyway. A great example is quitting smoking or dieting or exercising. There's so many apps and there's so many tools out there that use behavioral insights to help improve health outcomes, whether that's voluntarily or through your clinicians. The idea of the nudge is something that it's part of the toolkit to find those elements within the design of your product that are reminding the customer that there's something they need to do in order to achieve what they already have indicated they want to achieve. Perhaps give us the theoretical idea of a nudge. In the health space, there's actually a fairly standard set of tools that we might use in any health product. 
first and foremost, is goal setting. It's to be able to articulate what your end goal is. But the behavioral insight with that is that trying to think of the end goal is too hard. So let's think about quitting smoking. Imagining yourself as somebody who no longer smokes is too big to cope for most people. It's very idealistic. And that's why New Year's resolutions typically fail. It's because people are thinking of that as though it's going to change straight away. And that one big goal is too much for most people to cope with. So we use behavioral insights to do what we call chunking, which is where we start to break down the goals and create very small, little tiny baby steps to get to your bigger goal. So you need to set your big goal, but we say, don't Here's your big goal. Fantastic. Great. Let's just park that for a second. Now we're going to ask you to set very small goals. Can you get through today without a cigarette? Great. Fantastic. You've done brilliantly. Right. Let's look at tomorrow. Let's get through tomorrow without a cigarette. Fantastic. And before you know it, we're trying to change those habits little bit by little bit with chunked goals. And we use another tool called commitment contracts within that. So that might be in it. We didn't use it in my quit buddy, but we do have it in a couple of other products we have where you imagine a scenario or the bad thing happening or the undesirable consequence and you pre-plan for what you're going to do if that event is going to happen. I know it's not healthcare, but we do actually have an app called Avow that is built as a behavior change tool for domestic violence offenders to stop re-offending. And it's usually targeted towards those who've got ADVOs, specifically in New South Wales. And we ask people to imagine those danger points where they know they may be at risk of committing an offense, of breaking their conditions. And so we ask them to plan for what happens under that occurrence. So for example, if one of the conditions says that they're not allowed to be near their partner for 12 hours after drinking, which is absolutely a condition that can be applied by the courts, then we have a tool in there that says, right, if you're going to drink, please tell us what you plan to do after that. And it could be, if I drink, I am going to stay at my friend Dave's. And so we ask them to pre-plan for an eventuality that is probably going to happen, but at least they've thought through that ahead of time and they're not in the moment where they don't know what to do. So that's what we call a commitment contract. So that's a really common one. It's the goal creating the big, big fancy goal that they're trying to get to and then breaking that down into chunks of like, what am I going to do this week? What am I going to do next week? And how am I actually going to achieve that? And then we start layering in other tools such as progress markers, positive affirmations. We tend to stay away from the, oh, you smoked today. So that's a really bad thing. So we're going to reset your counter. We stay away from that language because it's okay to fail. This is this idea of gamification that we use within this space is it's fundamental to people's behavior and how they learn is to be able to fail and to be allowed to fail. Um, Not in any major life changing way, for instance, but they should be allowed to fail in little ways that help them, encourage them to keep going. So for example, in my quit buddy, when we're checking in and saying, Hey, how did you go today? Have you had a smoke today? And if they say, oh, I gave in, I had a smoke, we actually ask them the question, do you think that was just like a one-off? Because if so, that's fine. Let's move on from that. We'll just keep going. Or do you actually think it's kind of the start of your habit again? Do you want to start again? So we give them that option and tread very carefully through making sure that the positive language that we use and the tone that we use is really targeted towards that audience and what we think might motivate them to either start again or to keep going. Another really important tool we use is journaling. 
you'll see a lot of this in psychology anyway. I think we've all heard of the therapists who say, you should really write that down in a diary, how you felt. That's absolutely true in digital products as well. We have lots of different tools that we use for journaling, and it could be anything from recording your voice, recording somebody else's voice potentially as a motivator, taking photos, taking a video, or simply writing something or drawing something. It's all of these really cool tools that we can use. And over time, we've come down to the fact that journaling can also be a little bit over-egged. So we now simplify it down to just a little happy smiley face, like out of these three moods, how are you feeling? Great? No. So that's probably our key tools, but there's probably many more in terms of the salience and making things much more easy and visual and those things as well. I love it. There's just so many parallels just in terms of a health tech developer. I can see so much of this already infused in the culture that we have in building technology for healthcare providers and their clients. Can it go wrong? Are there any drawbacks with it? Are there sort of impediments for health tech that we need to be mindful of? Yes. At the moment, particularly, it definitely comes down to data and privacy. I mean, with the advent of GDPR over in Europe, yes, it's absolutely relevant in Australia. And you'll find that most digital agencies are bringing the principles of that into their work anyway. It's just easier because a lot of those principles are what matches with a lot of our privacy acts as well. It's sometimes just in the detail. But because we know that people are much more aware of their data exists and how that starts to get used by other agencies, I think they're getting a little bit more educated about this space. So they're becoming a lot more wary about organisations, what data they're taking, what are they using it for, and are they going to sell that to somebody else? And I think people are okay with that. People in general are kind of getting a bit okay with personalised adverts, for instance. I read a study yesterday, don't quote me on the actual study itself, but I read an article that did say that our youth, our teenagers and our young adults at the moment are actually okay with having these personalised adverts out for them because at least it's relevant. At least it's something they might actually go forth with. The older cohorts, we may be a lot more suspicious of that, but it's this openness and honesty of organisations to make sure that the data they are storing is robust, that it's secure, that people aren't going to be able to take their name and their physical address and know that that person has cancer or that person has a mental health problem. That is really, really important to people and it should be. So we just need to make sure that the underlying health systems are robust enough that we can start to trust them. I talk a lot about the NHS in the UK and how much trust the public actually have in the NHS. It's an old institution. It's a little clunky in places, but people love it because it's reliable. At the very least, they have this backup. And we don't have that same association with our healthcare industry in Australia. So we're a little bit less trusting of our data with government. The My Health Records, you can opt out. And I'm not surprised that a lot of people want to do that. The government have got a lot of work to do to build the proper infrastructure in place to make it interoperable with other systems. And that's what we're going to have to start seeing in order for health products to start talking to us about our real health data. It's all going to start to have to be a lot more integrated and a lot more interoperable. And it's going to have to start with the government's health systems themselves, I think. Yeah, it's fantastic. I'm glad you made that point because I was going to make it myself. I think it's really key when we compare the Australian healthcare system, we're primarily funded by the taxpayer, but it's delivered by private businesses. And so private businesses naturally need to be concerned with how they operate their business, making sure they're as efficient and effective as possible. 
And so I think part of the background challenge for consumers is that the interoperability that you talk about is by making it as trustworthy and clinically safe and secure and private so that the clinically relevant meaningful use information can actually be shadowed in line with the journey of the patient or the client. So as they navigate through different points of care, the respective data relevant to that navigation is coming with them. And that makes for a better user experience of the healthcare system as a whole. And that will open up other innovation opportunities for individual healthcare professionals engagement with their particular client as well. So it's a fascinating, lot of moving parts. We've sort of been just touching on some of the concepts and some of the research and some of the established ideas, how your organization is able to support healthcare customers with figuring out how to improve outcomes for their respective patients and clients as well. Just before I let you go, I'm kind of interested in where you see this all going in the context of sort of reimagining healthcare. How do you see things playing out over the next sort of five to 10 years? Well, Australia's got a bit of catching up to do, like I just mentioned. It's got to start from the bottom up with the core health systems. At the end of the day, until that is done and sorted out and agreed and has a very specific structure in place for other organisations like us to work with, we're going to have to just figure things out along the way and try to make systems that we build robust enough that we can integrate them later on with more core e-health systems when they start to get up to parity. A good example is I know that, well, through COVID, we've all probably lived the experience of having telehealth appointments and yay, we finally all agree that it's a great thing. And even the government have now worked out that it's worth putting on the Medicare system as a standard item. But what has happened is most doctor surgeries are using different telehealth solutions and we don't necessarily know if this solution is better than that one. How secure is that solution versus that one? So I know that there's chatter in the government right now to work out now that they're funding telehealth is to really make sure that the system for telehealth becomes a lot more robust and is something that becomes common across the system itself and so that they'll all be using a common standard sustainable system. Um, So there's talk in that space already and that's a fantastic start. But in the meantime, I think the rest of us, we just kind of have to tread carefully, keep our ears out and make sure that what we're building is as secure as we can make it with the tools that we have. And that's a lot. We have a lot of tools at our disposal. There's a lot of technology out there. We make sure that our processes include things like building, architecting our databases in such a way that, for example, we split our data. We make sure that our personal data is separate from our trackable user data. What I mean by that is that they're in two separate places. So if somebody hacks this data, they can't see who it belongs to at the very least. Or if they hack who we've got on there, they can't see the data at its very simple level. So architecting the solution itself to be as secure as possible and then using all of our tools at our disposal. There's a lot of monitoring tools out there. We can actually pay for penetration testing of our systems. And I think people should really be investing a lot more of doing the white hacking process to make sure that those systems are robust enough to handle the existing risks and of storing data and storing health data in particular. And over the next few years, I think we'll start to see people really playing in that interesting space around, I know VR has been a little while, around a little while, and so is AR for therapeutics and diagnostics. But now that we're talking about the metaverse, it's like, how do we move from using haptic gloves and VR for stroke rehabilitation? How do we move that into this metaverse in the next 
according to Mark Zuckerberg, in the next five to 10 years. But I think that's probably a bit ambitious. I'm thinking more like 10 to 15, because we're going to need to have those systems in place before we can start entering the metaverse and conversing with our doctors with our own avatar who can see our data in our digital twin. I think we're a long way from that in the health environment. But in the meantime, we're going to start seeing a lot more of these personalized apps, personalized platforms that can be configured by clinicians that a user out in Darwin, whose expert clinician is actually in Adelaide, they can still have as meaningful care as the people that can see those doctors in person. So having that ability to transcend distance is going to be a wonderful thing that we can do for people to be able to choose their healthcare provider, not based on where they are, but how easily they can access them. So many great opportunities ahead, actually, to fill in the gaps and address some of the pain points in healthcare at the moment, both from a consumer standpoint and also from the healthcare workforce standpoint. I think it's important to bring those two together and tapping into a lot of what you were saying in the technical realms, making sure that we're moving at human speed so that we're actually doing cultural innovation adjacent to the technological innovation which goes to, I think, everything you're doing professionally at the moment is kind of making sure that we're iterating together. Otherwise, we're just seeing these big ideas that one day we can all live on Mars. Okay, great. But living on Mars today, are we going to move to Mars tomorrow? So technology is very exciting and interesting to talk about the vision of it, the possibility of it. But at a pragmatic day-to-day level, people are doing things already a certain way. And we've got to be able to merge into that in a way that all the humans involved can actually adjust to. And small changes, I think, are the best rapidly. It kind of helps us move forward faster than trying to make these big jumps with a lot of these big ideas that often take the headlines. But yeah, it's in our hands. And we've had some breakthroughs as a result of the restrictions on our movement. We can do more with that. Maybe even the centre of the healthcare system could actually be you, wherever you are on your terms, as and when you need it. And that allows people to have a very personalized experience and actually bring their own healthcare providers with them wherever they happen to go, whether it's in Australia or outside of Australia as well. Great vision there, Lynette. I knew we were going to struggle to get a sort of a half hour conversation in on this because it's just a fascinating (laughs) area that's had quite a bit of time now to actually infuse itself into a lot of our lives and we're not even conscious of it. And yet there's still so many learnings to go through. And that co-design, co-create thing is really an important philosophy to be taking forward. So I really appreciate you being evangelist for that and the work that you're doing at the Project Factory. Looking forward to catching up with you in the future, Lynette. Thank you. Thank you so much. I really appreciate your time. Thanks for listening. This podcast is produced in collaboration with Health Tech X, where we are working toward a world of integrated digital health empowerment for all people. If you'd like more info on how to get involved, head over to the website, healthtechx.com.au. Or if you have any feedback about the show, you can reach out to me directly on LinkedIn, Instagram, or email by following the links in this episode's show notes. And finally, don't forget to subscribe to Reimagining Healthcare in your podcast app. And if you like what you heard, leave us a five-star review. It really helps other people find the show. I'm your host, Yanni Sopanos, and I'll speak to you in our next episode.